So turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. And Genesis 11 is important because, you know, this is the Tower of Babel narrative, or Babel. Uh, and we're talking about the nation of Babylon today. And so there's some ties here. So I'm going to read the first nine verses of this chapter. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the people migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is, the, this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they pur- propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, And they left off building the city. Therefore it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. When we hear this story, we're filled with pictures of this spiraling tower. If you just go to Google Images, search Tower of Babel. And you will see the same picture done a hundred different ways. It's this tall tower with a spirally thing, and there's people working all over it. Um, And what you don't see, typically, is this picture of God still having to come down to uh, deal with the people. And he causes all the different languages. Consequently, it was a very gracious response on his account. Were he to fully judge their sin, the story of humanity would have taken a very different turn at this point. But instead, he was gracious, and he only confused their languages, letting them live. And they scattered, and they set the many nations and the many languages of the world kind of in motion at this point. And the story of one of those nations would follow. Immediately in chapter 12, you read of one of these nations, whom Abraham is going to be the beginning of. But the rest of that story is not without incursions from the other nations. That left the tower. In fact, Israel doesn't have many allies as it goes through its journey throughout the Bible. And over the years, it has gathered many long-time enemies, many of which still exist today in one form or another. Just watch the news. We are familiar <clears throat> with this story of the Tower of Babel, and I wanted to read it here because it serves, I think, as a great introduction for this section of Isaiah, which ends in chapter 27. The reason... The arrogance demonstrated in Babel typifies the arrogance of the nations before their holy God. In Babylon, the nation that grew up really along the site of this tower takes center stage in our text today. It's where Babylon gets its name. Though it be many years before their eventual fall, Here, Isaiah is prophesying what happens to nations that turn against the one true God. We should probably perk our ears up a little bit. 
Isaiah will walk through many of these different nations over the next several chapters, and we're going to hear about nations that we've probably barely heard about before. It's going to be easy for us to point fingers and say, look at them, they shouldn't have been doing those things. Now God's angry with them. And we, we may want to point fingers. However, were we, as a nation, found in biblical times, the United States would have been center stage in this sort of section because of national arrogance and a need of repentance, becoming a nation several thousand years later after these prophecies does not relieve us of our need for repentance. And so that's why we come to this text today to learn about our own repentance as a nation also, but also as us for us personally as believers in God. And while God deals with people groups, typically he saves individuals. Every single person must give account for their sins. This passage isn't without the hope of restoration. We'll see that in the first few verses of chapter 14. As we look at this passage, I want to consider two main ideas. The judgment against Babylon and the restoration of Jacob. And so with that, let's look at the text together. Isaiah chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of the kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pains and agonies will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with fierce or with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark in its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, to lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. And the wrath of the Lord of hosts in that day of his fierce anger, like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through. Whoever is caught fall will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver silver, and who do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor of pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. 
It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in its pleasant palaces. Its time, its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and will again choose Israel, and will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them, and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. For the peoples will take them, and the peoples will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who are their captors and rule over those who oppress them. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Isaiah continues to uh, not disappoint in its word pictures for us. Most commentaries deal with 13 and 14 as a single unit of thought, the judgment against Babylon. I wanted to break it up for a few reasons, the main one being that in chapter 14, the text that we would have gotten into is very famous for its text concerning the quote-unquote day star, or sometimes translated as Lucifer. So I wanted to take that separately so that we could deal with it correctly and at length. I think it's appropriate for us to do so concerning many of the errors in its interpretation. Babylon had been around for almost as long as people had been around. Very old civilization. They settled right there where the first people settled. It has a few rises and falls over the course of the biblical narrative, but would eventually be wiped out by the Medo-Persian army, which we read about in our text today. Much later in Scripture, in Revelation, Babylon is used to symbolically represent the antithesis of the Savior and the people of God. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. Just to get a picture here, first three verses, After I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of passion, of sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Her is referred to as Babylon here. Babylon was long since gone in the days of the, when the Revelation was written, but it is largely considered this kind of... Um, picture of debauchery and licentiousness. In Isaiah's time, it was a cultural center, but it was also this cult, this center of uh, hedonism. Whatever you wanted, you could get in Babylon. 
In the New Testament times, that place was then called Rome. Not Babylon changing its name to Rome, but Rome became that place in the New World. And so, in the New Testament times, and in Revelation in particular, the idea here is that the city of, or the Babylon in Revelation is probably talking about Rome. It's not hard to find those same kinds of representations in our own world today, particularly in our own country, as we see very similar ideas in our own society and similar kinds of cities even. Just watch the news or social media. You'll see every kind of indulgence and sin out there. Lots of people seeking money, power, and pleasure and going through any means necessary to obtain those things. Our election cycle, really, as we're getting ready to go through another circus time uh, in our country, is really just about those three things, money, power, and pleasure. And they're just shrouded by these seemingly important issues that we're dealing with, which really are nothing at all but just our own hedonism, really. The Christian has a tall order to parse through the rhetoric of the day and to see the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that people are dead in their sins, and they will continue to act that way until acted upon the only one who has the power of resurrection, the Spirit of God. As long as we see our culture as the means by which the culture will be saved, we are missing the point of Scripture and really all existence at all. Culture cannot save itself. It will not. It will continue to destroy itself. Just read history. There is no Savior but Christ. To think otherwise is to place yourself in the courts of Babylon or the courts of Rome and to take your pick of any historical sinful place that history only now mentions as an afterthought. To turn against God is to turn to your own destruction. This brings me to the first point, the judgment against Babylon. Look at verse 1 with me. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. First thing we need to get to is this is a prophecy of Isaiah. This was not added later after Isaiah's death, as some critics of the Bible will try to tell us. See, obviously they added this later after Babylon fell, and so now it can kind of be placed in here. Not true. How do we know that's not true? Well, because the Bible says this is what the son of this is what the son of Amos, Isaiah, this is what he saw. So we tend to believe the Bible in what it says. We believe the God of the Bible, we believe his word to be true. If we do not believe his word to be true, then we do not believe the God of the Bible. End point. Look with me at verse 2. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter into the gates of the nobles. We have this picture of this messenger running up onto a hill. I had never seen a bare hill in my life until I went to Great Britain. And there was one. Lots of them, actually. They don't hills with no trees on them. In this part of the world, every hill has a tree on it. And so it was you get this picture of someone running up to this bare hill with a signal. And for miles around, the armies can see that he is signaling them to come. It's now time to attack. And notice what their target is. The gates of the nobles. This isn't a call to only attack the wealthy. Rather, it is symbolic of a nation that fancies itself as noble and proud, like Babylon. 
The Lord is planning to use another army to do his bidding. We've seen this before. In this case, he calls this army that he has chosen his consecrated ones. Other places in Scripture, you see this word consecrated used when referring to items in the Holy Temple being consecrated for a special use that only is used for the Lord's doing. Here we have this army of barbarians that the Lord himself calls his consecrated ones. They aren't for any mundane use. They are for the Lord's work. Verses 4 and 5 describe this army as a great multitude. That is from a distant land, which is a good description. The Medes, which are later mentioned in verse 17, are an army that come from what is today modern-day Iran. Babylon is modern-day Iraq. You can see that these people have not liked each other for a very long time. Uh, Much longer than the United States has been around, so it's not necessarily our fault, as many of us say. Verse 17 describes the Medes. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver, who do not delight in gold. These Medes are not ones that need wealth. They're just there for the slaughter. They're just there for the job that the Lord has sent them to do. And again, it's no secret as to why these modern-day nations hate one another. Just look back into their history some. Going on, verses 6 through 8 speak to the response to this army coming. Wail, for the arm, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. Only anguish is going to come from this army coming in. And notice there's no way to counter the coming of the Lord. It's not like you read about a counteroffensive that's going to happen against this, this army that's coming. When the Lord decides to lay waste to a nation, they are gone. Verse 19 says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. There'll be no more. They're going to be gone. You can go look at Babylon today if you'd like. There are a bunch of building-shaped rocks laying around where Babylon once was. Only animals live there now, just like this text describes to us is going to happen. I want to focus on verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Because of their arrogance, the people will be made more rare than gold. Think about that for a moment. There will be more gold in the area than there will be people. People will be a sparse thing, whereas gold will be plentiful when you compare the two after the Lord gets done with what he's doing. They'll be hunted like gazelles, scattered like sheep. Even their young will receive judgment. And we have a very graphic picture there in verse 16. It's a sad thing. Many would want to point a finger at the Lord and say, but how could a good God do bad things? And they're The ones who are really bold will finish that sentence with what they're implying. How can a good God do 
bad things to good people. Like the Babylonians. You know, they're great people. Or those people that live in the U.S. Aren't they just wonderful people? Because they're good people, or at least they think they are. Babylon thought themselves to be good. So did Sodom and Gomorrah. They thought themselves to be good. So does the average person today think him or herself to be good. There is a problem, however, with that thought. It's not true. They aren't good. How do we know? Again, the Bible tells us over and over again about people. And it tells us they aren't good. They are seeking to build a tower for themselves, saying, let us build a name for ourselves. Does that not sound like the mantra of every single person living on the face of the earth today? This hasn't changed much since people were gathering in places called Shinar. Since then, people have been gathering in places called Assyria and Babylon and Rome and the United States and other places. Make more mis- no mistake, the God that judged Babylon for their pride has not changed at all. He does not change. If you read the New Testament, you think, see, God is more friendly now. Uh, you're not reading the New Testament. The one that I know, at least. Remember, the Son of God was there. Oftentimes we want to look at Jesus and we want to see this meek little Jesus that's so friendly and nice. The Son of God was there in that day when Babylon was overthrown and He stood in agreement with the Spirit and the Father as they did their work. We worship a God who hates pride, who alone wants to deserve all the credit and the glory that there is. Whatever tower, whatever name we are attempting to build for ourselves, rest assured he will deal with it. And he'll have to come down to do it. We're never going to somehow outdo God in our quest to do so. So what do we need to do with this pride, brothers and sisters in Christ? This part of us that is constantly seeking to overthrow God and His glory. Well, we have to give it up. That brings me to the next point, the restoration of Jacob, verses 1 and 2. I'll read again of chapter 14. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them. And will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them. And the Lord's land is male and female slaves. And they will take captive those who were their captors. And rule over those who oppressed them. The Lord will have compassion. And will again choose Israel. And to be sure, this isn't because Israel has somehow separated themselves as infinitely choosable. It's not like he said, you know, this Babylon's really bad, but look at Israel over there. Aren't they doing a great job? They continue to impress me. If you think that's the case, just go back and read the first 12 chapters of the book of Isaiah because the Lord deals very plainly with the people of Israel, his own arrogant children. The thing that separates Babylon and Assyria and the other nations that we're getting ready to talk about is not Israel's conduct and their behavior and their piety. It's God's promise that separates 
those people. It's his choice for his own people. Remember, he went to Abraham, who was not a picture of piety himself. He was among the pagan nations, worshiping other gods. And he went to Abraham and he said, Go to the place where I will show you. And he said, From you all the nations of the world will be blessed. He gave Abram that promise. When God gives a promise, he keeps it. God is preserving his people. And that is a function of the promise that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all of them down through the lineage. He'll never leave them or forsake them. In fact, he would come to live among them even. Even while they were yet sinners. Even while they were yet pompous and arrogant. He would come to live among them and be killed by them. And through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 14. As even the sojourners will join themselves to Israel. All the nations will come in and they will receive blessing. Then we have this bit about Israel taking slaves for themselves. It sticks out like a sore thumb in the middle of an otherwise easy passage. There are a few views here, and I think it's important for us to deal with them. Some have just dismissed it and said, well, this is just a holdover of Jewish nationalism, and they just kind of toss it out, which we can't really do, you know, because it's God's work. Others tend to spiritualize it, which, comparing it to the Great Commission, and the church is called to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, bringing them into the fold, which is where I would tend to go and could see that as an easy application here. However, there's something else there. One of the great themes of Christianity is freedom, that the freedom that we have in Christ. What are we set free from? We're not set free from some oppressive government. Lots of Christians died under a very oppressive government. They're still dying from oppression, oppressive governments. We just don't see those things in the news. We are set free from sin and death. Our great enemies, the ones that would actually oppress us and hold us down. There are other enemies in the world that are more worldly But they are perishing. Go back and read chapter 13 if you have doubt about that. The Babylonians of the world go away. It's our captivity to sin and death that once enslaved us and in many many ways still haunt us today. And so what does the coming of Christ have for us then when He comes? He comes to set the captives free. To completely undo the curse of sin and literally turn the world on its head. For those who were captive are now free. And those enemies that had once held dominion over us on earth are now held captive to the Son of God. In Revelation 18, you see that picture of the angel that that hurls the giant millstone into the sea with Babylon attached to it and thus destroying this enemy of the people of God. And after that, in verse 19, there is this great celebration, this marriage supper of the Lamb, in which the Lord rides forth on His white horse and and ushers in this new heavens and new earth. We wait for that day. 
But until then, brothers and sisters, our enemies are already defeated. We don't have to do the work of going about defeating them. The death and resurrection of Christ did, and they are now captive. We have to grab a hold of that. It's true. We have to believe that. It's hard for people who were once oppressed to believe that they are now free. We are free in Christ. And so then what does that do to our pride? If we have nothing that's holding us down, and the only reason we have nothing that's holding us down is because the Lord has set us free, we have to look at our pride, which says, look at what I did, and we have to take it and take it to Christ and lay it down before Him. He alone is the victor. We did nothing to help Him. We did nothing for our own salvation. We do nothing for the salvation of those that we share the gospel with and disciple. The Lord does all of that as well. The only one who deserves to make a name for himself is Jesus Christ. And we as his people should go about making his name great. Not our own. We cast down our own pride. We lift up the name of Christ as the only Savior for anyone. And it's that name alone by which man and woman can be saved. If you're here and you're not in Christ, I want you to hear that. There's no other name that you can call upon to be saved. No other name. There's no other system of belief. There's no other anything. Only the name of Jesus Christ has the power to save. Call upon His name and be saved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, cast down your personal pride. Instead, make the name of Jesus great. Let us be ones who make His name great in all that we do and say. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, as we come to You, we recognize that we easily could stand beside Babylon as pompous and arrogant, even if we don't see it in ourselves. We don't see it in ourselves because we are those things. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to open our eyes to see the depth of our sin and therefore then see how much you have saved us, how much we have been freed from, how much you did and how much we did not do. Lord, help us to lay down our personal pride. Help us to lay down our national pride that we might better serve and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.